Welcome to this month's Bible Q&A. Um, we are hanging out in 1 and 2 Chronicles and the letter of James. Um, Chris, why don't you pray? Oh, let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, even though many of the books of the Bible that we read, that we go in between each month seem very different, you know, especially when you compare the Old and the New Testament, the time that elapsed between them and the different stages of history they were in and the different contexts, the truth is you were the same God and you still are. And so all I want to just pray is that this evening we would see the God that was there in, in, in the scriptures, both in Chronicles and in James. Amen. Awesome. Okay, guys. Um, so, kicking us off tonight is me, actually. Uh, but before we get into the first question, there's a little bonus question that got put in the box this morning, I think. Um, and it's only going to take me a couple of seconds, so I thought I'll throw that one in and answer it quickly. So somebody put in the box this morning, just, um, why in the church reading plan do you have us pop dodging around the minor prophets and not reading in order? Um, great question. I didn't, I didn't randomly select the books of the Bible. So you might remember the first time we did the Bible reading plan in 2020? Yeah, we, we started in Genesis and we read through as it's written in the Bible all the way through to Revelation. This time when we started in 2022, we did it a bit differently, partly because um, lots of people said, oh, we didn't like spending a year and a half in the Old Testament, because um, it was quite a long time in the Old Testament. So we thought we'd do a bit of the old, a bit of the new. We jumped backwards and forwards between, between, between the books. But what I did was I actually paired up all the books. Um, so you might have seen, it's not on the new website, but on the old website, let me put this up, there was this version of the Bible reading plan. Did any of you see that? It was available at the back at one point. And, and down the side, it said why all the books were linked up together. So you might remember, um, we read Genesis and then we read John's Gospel. Um, and the reason was because John uses lots of Genesis language, the whole creation stuff, and there are seven miracles matching the seven days and, and all this kind of thing in the beginning, all that language was there. Then we read Exodus and then we read Matthew's gospel because in Matthew's gospel, he portrays Jesus as the new Moses. And so we got a whole load of stuff there. And so they're all connected up. So um, at the moment, we've been reading two chronicles, Jonah, Nahum, and Obadiah. And the reason they're all together is because these three prophets uh, were speaking God's word to the people living during the time of two chronicles. So they kind of got put together with two chronicles as a bit of a block before we jump back into Ezra, Nehemiah, and 1 and 2 Timothy. And they're together because those books and letters, they deal with uh, how to lead God's people in the Old Testament nation and in the New Testament church. So, so thematically, they've kind of been linked up a little bit. Does that make sense? That's it. 
Uh, it was your question. Okay, cool. Yeah, there we go. All right. So on to question, actual question number one, which is uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 5. Why did Solomon need to sacrifice so many uh, cattle, sheep, and goats? So let's have a quick look at 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 7, verse 5. It says... Um, and King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 head of cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the people dedicated the temple of God. It's a lot of cattle and a lot of sheep and goats. So why did he sacrifice all of that? Um, first up, let me just tell you that there are some people that believe he didn't sacrifice all of that. So there are some people that look at the Bible and they look at the numbers and they go, oh, 22,000, probably more like 22, and 100 and, what was the other one, 120,000, probably more like 120. And, and so they kind of reduce it down, they kind of knock the zeros off and think that the zeros have been added for dramatic impact or, or whatever, that kind of thing. And th there is a school of thought that, that believes that. Um, part of their justification is that that's 142,000 animals that were slaughtered, and that would be roughly one every four seconds across seven days if they did it consistently for 10 hours a day. S something like that um, is what I think I read, um, which is a lot. It's <laughs> a lot, right? Um, so they just think, ah, oh, it's just not possible, and there's all kinds of justification for it. But um, I, I don't think I sit in that camp. I think I would say, yeah, possible that they did do all of that. And I'll tell you why in a second. First up, why did they need to? Why did Solomon need to? I don't necessarily think he needed to. I think he wanted to. I think if you read the chapter before, they've just built the temple. They've just prayed this prayer of dedication over it. And then suddenly we get into this chapter and when Solomon finishes praying, fire comes down from heaven and consumes the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. I mean, that must have been amazing, right? Amazing. And I think when God just showed up in his presence uh, in that kind of epic way, I think the response was, let's worship right? Let's worship. And, and they just made offerings to God, free will, thanksgiving uh, offerings to God because his presence is here. So let's, let's honor him. Let's worship him. And I think that was the overflow of their heart's response to the presence of God showing up. It was that amazing when, uh, not that we're used to the presence of God. I don't mean it like this, but today we live with the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. That wasn't true back then. The Holy Spirit had not been poured out on all flesh. Very few people had the Holy Spirit resting upon them. I can't imagine what life would have been like, like that, you know? Like, um, and suddenly the very presence of God shows up in fire in front of them. And the weight, the glory of God fills the temple. Like, boom, what do you do? We worship. How did they worship? They made offerings. So I think it was a heart response. Um, secondly, if you flip back to Numbers chapter 7, um, we're not going to read it all, but 
Um, in Numbers chapter 7, you can cast your eyes down and you'll see there that the tabernacle, which was like the precursor to the temple, the tabernacle had just been built and God's presence showed up there and they also made offerings and sacrifices. So they all bought offerings and sacrifices and they, they offered to the Lord. And I think in some ways, it's a little bit like that happened in the wilderness when they didn't actually have their own land yet. And now the temple, God's led them into their own land and they've built the temple that the name of the Lord is going to dwell in. And, and, and so suddenly it's like, this is like the tabernacle, but I was going to say on speed then. <laughs> it's like, this is like the tabernacle, but like, boom, even like actually in our land, actually with God as king. Like, do you know what I mean? And so I think even, they offered even more sacrifices and it just went, just went nuts with their worship. Um, so I think partly that. The other thing that I think is this, and um, 1 Kings chapter 8, if you want to go there, and I'll wrap up with this. 1 Kings chapter 8 is the king's version of the chronicle story that we were just in. And in verse, so the temple's just been built and all of that kind of stuff's happened. And then in verse um, 63... Yeah, it says this. Solomon offered a sacrifice of fellowship offerings to the Lord, 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the Israelites dedicated the temple to the Lord. So, back to Leviticus. (laughs) Fellowship offerings. The fellowship offering was one of five offerings that was uh, prescribed in the book of Leviticus. And the fellowship offering was a little bit different to the other offerings. It was a meal. So you brought the offering in, they sacrificed the offering, they roasted it, and then you ate it before you left the temple. You, You actually, the fellowship offering was about sitting down and eating with God. It was friendship. It was mealtime with your father. And so here we read in Kings that this big offering that Solomon's just made, this 142,000 animals, is a fellowship offering. And we also read that all Israel is with him. So it's a lot of mouths to feed, right? I mean, I think in um, one of the previous chapters, David had taken a a census and there was about 1.3 million people. So we're talking a little bit later, probably the nation's grown as well. It's a lot of people, a lot of people. And um, so 1.3 million was the number of fighting men, I think, not necessarily just the whole of the nation. So there's there's a lot of people. And so suddenly 142,000 animals kind of maybe makes a bit more sense. They're putting on a meal for... Yeah, for seven days, for the whole nation. So does that make sense? I think that's why. Um, I wanted to find some specific numerology with the 142,000, and I couldn't find anything. I searched high and low. I was like, there's got to be something, and I, and I couldn't. I was like, oh, why wasn't there an extra 2,000? It would have been 144,000, and that would have been a bit more exciting. But hey, did you want to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, probably safe to assume that a few of the Israelites were vegans as well. So. <laughs> You know, so it wasn't like they had to feed all of Israel with the meat, but... Hey, great. Um, so the next question is for Dennis, which is, 2 Chronicles 8, 11, Who was Pharaoh's daughter, and why did Solomon not allow his wife to live in the palace of King David? 2 Chronicles 8, 11. 
I'm going to take the question in two parts. Who was Pharaoh's daughter? And why did Solomon not allow his wife to live in the palace of the king? So, reading the verse uh, 2 Chronicles 8, 11, Solomon brought Pharaoh's daughter up from the city of David to the palace he had built for her. For he said, my wife does not live in the palace of David, king of Israel, because the palaces, because the places the ark of the Lord has entered are holy. And then, um, you don't need to go to this, but if you went to 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 1, you would see the same sort of thing. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, important, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and a wall around Jerusalem. So the main thing um, with this is it we don't really know who the daughter of Pharaoh was because when you get all the Pharaohs, all the history is written about a particular Pharaoh. Nothing is written about the daughters. And everywhere you look um, in the commentators, everybody brushes over it because the daughter of Pharaoh is not really important in scripture or to some extent uh, in Egypt. It's all about the Pharaoh. The only thing that I found um, is in the Talmud, which is the, uh, the Jewish writings. But the problem with the Talmud, as in every question in the Talmud, is you get different rabbis saying the same thing but differently. They all got their own, own different opinion. So you get one rabbi would talk about um, the daughter of Pharaoh and another rabbi would talk about her in a different way. So really, there's no answer to it except to say this. The, in the time scale that um, Solomon became king around about 970 uh, BC, and then running down to the temple when he started building it four years later. And then he took 20 years to uh, build his own palace and make a palace for a Pharaoh's daughter. It, in that time, that time that he, he took there was, uh, a, a, he made a, a magnificent palace for his daughter, for Pharaoh's daughter, because of this alliance, which we have looked at in 1 Kings chapter three and verse one. So, marrying Pharaoh's daughter made that alliance, uh, uh, an alliance for trade, a political alliance, because at that time, uh, Egypt was under the uh, 21st dynasty and it was becoming weak. And trying to look up who the daughter of Pharaoh was, I believe it was a prophet, uh, uh, a Pharaoh called Salmon. And what he did was to build the temple of a moon. So Pharaoh's daughter would have come to Jerusalem to live with David and his wife, and she would have been uh, worshiping a moon. So here is David with this very important queen, all the rest of the queens that he had, and all the rest of the concubines, there's 700 queens, 300 concubines, so he had a net eight because one woman's enough. <laughs> so he must have had a headache, right? But the, the daughter of Pharaoh, although we don't know exactly her name or who she was, she had this magnificent palace built for her. 
and it's right along, D, right along uh, Solomon's palace. So what I want to do is to just read to you. Um, the nearest I got to it is from uh, the Jewish antiquities of Josephus. And this is what he says. This, is, this shows you some of the magnificence of Solomon's palace. This house was a large and, and curious building and was supported by many pillars which Solomon built to contain a multitude for hearing causes and taking cognizance of sweets. It was sufficient spacious to contain a great body of men who would come together to have their causes determined. It was 100 cubits long and 50 broad and 30 high, supported by quadrilateral pillars, which were all of cedar. But its roof was according to the Corinthian order, with four indoors and their adjoining pillars of equal magnitude, each fluted with three cavities, which building as at once firm and very ornamental. There was also another house so ordered that its entire breadth was placed in the middle of its quadrangle, and its breadth was 30 cubits, having a temple near it, raised upon massive pillars, in which temple there was a large and very glorious room, wherein the king sat in judgment. To this, and this is the important point, was joined another house that was built for his queen. So uh, Josephus is a first century historian, and uh, even he only says and mentions that Pharaoh's queen, just one line, just Pharaoh just had this queen brought to, to, to Jerusalem and he built a house for her. So really that's all I can get out of who um, this lady was. Now as regards to, uh, as regards to not allowing his wife to live in the palace of King David, um, because as I've already mentioned, she would probably be worshiping uh, the god Amun, and where the ark had been, and David had kept the ark there in the city of David, that was holy ground. They considered that holy ground. And funnily enough, today, if you went to Jerusalem and you went up to the Temple Mount, all of the Orthodox Jews, the, the, the guys you see at the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, um, praying, they would not go up onto the Temple Mount if they could because it's controlled by the Arabs since 1967, um, because that was a concession from um, the Israelis. If they could go up onto that Temple Mount, they wouldn't, because they would not dare to walk across the space where the Ark or the Holy of Holies might have been. So that is coming from the city of David with the Ark right up to the day in Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. So they wouldn't even dare to walk across, say, say where uh, the Dome of the Rock is, be just in case they walked across the space where the ark was. Um, so this woman was not allowed to go anywhere near the space where the ark was. Now, because she had uh, an entourage which came to her from Egypt, she would have her maids, she would have um, riches, and she would have all these people that would not be worshipping uh, Jehovah, then she could not go near the temple even. In, in um, uh, I'm not sure of the dates, but 
tablets have been found. Uh, one is in a museum in uh, Jerusalem and one is in a museum in Turkey, which was attached to the wall of the temple. And I'm paraphrasing here, it said words to the effect that if you're a Gentile and you cross this path here, then you are condemning yourself to death. In other words, they could not go in. No Gentile could go in. And that, that, that comes right up to the second temple. No Gentile could go into the courts of the temple. In other words, the first court was the woman's, the ladies' court. The second court was where the uh, sacrifices were made. And then you've got the Holy of Holies. So no Gentile, no Greek convert, if you like, could go to Judaism, could go into the ladies' court even. So this... Uh, wife of Solomon's would not even be allowed to go into his new temple. Uh, I doubt very much whether she would be worried about that because she would want to worship a moon. So this is where Solomon is going to go astray a bit later on by giving all his wives access to their own gods, uh, to the Pharaoh's wife, and by the end of his life he is gone way astray from the guy he was who first built the temple and when the temple was built it took seven years and Solomon didn't drink all that time for seven years he was a good guy but suddenly with all these women thousand women all wanting their own God um, then he went astray so we don't really know Pharaoh's wife Pharaoh's wife what Pharaoh's daughter was um, but that's the nearest we're going to get to it. It's the nearest anybody's going to get to it, unless you want to sift through the tumult and, and, and try and work that out. Um, so this daughter of Pharaoh is not going to get anywhere near where the ark was. She's not going to get anywhere near to go into the temple when it's built, Solomon's temple. But she's going to worship her own gods just the same as all the other women. Awesome. I think it's fascinating that we talk about Solomon being good at the start and he built the temple for the Lord. But I think it's fascinating that at the very beginning, even when he's supposedly good, he marries an Egyptian, which quite clearly, I think God said, don't do. And, and he knows it's wrong because he knows he can't even bring her into the, the, the palace of David because she's an Egyptian. So he builds her her own palace, like on the side. And I just think, oh man, like I find that just an interesting challenge for us in that sense of, do we build a temple for the Lord in one part of our life to worship him? And yet in the other part of our life, build a palace for our sin. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I, I think probably Sometimes we do, and I just think that's such a, a challenging verse when I read that. And I, when that question came in, I thought, "Wow, that hit me!" Like, and just gave me something to dwell on. Like this good guy seeking the Lord, building a temple for God, and yet knowing full well that he'd married someone he shouldn't, who couldn't come into the presence of God. Well, what I'll do is I'll just build her a palace on the side. Like you know, I'm like, "What are you playing at, mate?" Um, but hey, anyway. Thanks, Den. Uh, Chris, you're up. 2 Chronicles 13, verse 5. What is a covenant of salt? Well, funnily enough, when I saw this question, I thought, I've, this, I'm reminded of it. You know, it's not something you'd remember unless you 
spoke about it previously, and I realised, looking back, that I we got the same question ah, a few months notes. back. No, um, I do keep my notes, oh, yeah. I'm a nightmare. Yeah, so I, so I flipped back, so I was tempted to just go back onto the podcast, find it, and just play it to you. <laughs> but um, just, so yeah, I, I, if any of you have the time, do go back and check that it's a similar answer. Um, but I did, I did look back at my notes, and I, but sort of added to it a little bit as well. But anyway... It's quite. It's fairly simple in that there's only three references to the salt of covenant or covenant of salt in in the Old Testament. So um, I'll read you the one in Leviticus, which is the one that sparked question number one a while back. And uh, Matt gets a commission every time Leviticus is mentioned. So from the Baptist. So um, season all your grain. This is Leviticus two thirteen. Just out of interest, season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. Um, and then you've got Numbers 18, verse 19. All the sacred gifts that the Israelites set aside for God, I give to you, to your sons and to the daughters that are with you, as a Jew for all time. It shall be an everlasting covenant of salt before God for you and for your offspring as well. And then the, the one that... Um, sparked this question was from 2 Chronicles 13.5, which says, Surely you know that the God of Israel gave David kingship over Israel forever to him and his sons by a covenant of salt. So there's not, not a lot of context around it. There's no explanation. So I'm not tempted to just make up any particular meaning. But um, I suppose the first thing to say is that in, in a in explicitly in a couple of them but I suppose it's implied at least all throughout them that it's added to an existing offering so it's some it's in the same way that we add I'm actually just funnily enough as I was sat here listening to Den and Matt I was sort of conscious of how much I smelt like salmon um, because I cooked salmon earlier no that's good I really felt quite uneasy about it and and it just reminded me you know i added salt to the salmon because that that obviously makes it taste better but not only that but obviously salt was added and is still added to food to preserve it to make it last longer um and that that's the that i think that is the key to this whether it's added to an existing covenant of of food or whether it's something in of itself it's about preservation and just just to pick a couple of those um references out of the three the one in two chronicles is talking about the kingship of david lasting forever and so you know there's something about the salt that has that meaning that the people would have understood this is about preservation this is about long lasting and actually um i've instructed myself to read Um, a few of the verses around 2 Chronicles 13 so let's do that it's a surprise because I can't remember what the context is but let's read it anyway yeah so then Abijah stood up on this is from verse 4 then Abijah stood up on Mount Zemariam that is in the hill country of Ephraim and said hear me O Jeroboam and all Israel Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave a kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by covenant of salt? 
Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, a servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his lords. And certain worthless scoundrels gathered about him and defied Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and irresolute and could not withstand them. So this is, this is when Israel and Judah are splitting apart. And I think that's important because what um, Abijah is saying is, this is the line of David that I'm protecting. And the reference to the sort of covenant is about the preservation of the line of David, which, as we know, is where Jesus comes from later down the line. So there's something not just about preservation of worship, preservation of covenant, but preservation of kingship, preservation of what God's doing through the lineage of David. And then just, just you know, numbers is, is similar and... Um, but sort of going back in a way, so just to remind you, it says, all the sacred gifts that the Israelites set aside for God, I give to you, to your sons, and to the daughters that are with you as a Jew for all time. It shall be an everlasting covenant of salt before God for you and for your offspring as well. The context here is it's a, it's a, it's a reference to Aaron's descendants. So again, there's something about this covenant representing the preservation of the lineage of the priests, which is what we continue, isn't it? So don't think there's a lot other than other to say about that, other than I think it's about preservation, whether that's about covenant that already exists, literally in terms of um, sacrifice or something bigger than that. Great. That's cool, mate. I've not even spotted that before. Like, I obviously, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I feel like when I think about kind of Jesus talking about you're the salt of the earth and you think about preservation, but I'd not made the connection to when it's mentioned it being about the line lasting forever. Can I just, yeah, yeah. Just, just what, just, I wasn't sure whether to mention that, but one of my, I, as you may have guessed from my random openings when I do get up here and preach, I love sort of science and sociology and all of that sort of stuff. And... One, one little fact that I read about when I was preparing to, to preach or speak about um, You're the Salt of the Earth was, I can't remember the exact details, so you'll have to forgive me, but um, these, these researchers in, um, I think it was India or Brazil, did this experiment over years and years with um, coconut trees. And they, they compared two coconut tree farms. They used sort of modern methods of fertilization in one and they use traditional farming salt because it's it's used to and and they found that the yield of the coconuts from the farm that used salt was like fourfold over 10 years and it's it just sort of struck me you know when Jesus was talking about being the salt of the earth you know those people who farmed would have been aware of that that sort of um, that use of salt, and and so again, what thinking about this covenant, I, I wonder as well whether there's something not just in preservation, but something about healing, something about you know health, and you know the salt's used to keep land healthy. It's used to rebind land when it's when it's broken down and bring back nutrients. And there's there's almost something there about you know a covenant being a not just about preserving, because you can preserve something that's sort of 
not worth anything, but actually bringing worth and value back to something. Love that. That's cool. Well, worth and value as well. Salt. So I think I'm right in saying that during Roman times, I don't know if it goes back as far as the Old Testament, but salt was used as a method of payment because it had value, which is where we get the word salary from. It comes from, from salt. So, yeah, that's cool, man. Mm, love that. Dan, you're up next. We're on to the book of James. James 1.17. Does God change? Because James says he doesn't. But what about Genesis 6, 6, 1 Samuel 15, 29, and Jonah 4, 1 to 2? Good luck. <laughs> if you um, look up, first of all, the, the James 1, um, which is 1, James 1 and 17, I will be dodging about um, in between books, so you needn't worry about that. If you just, I will be reading out the, the verses, so if you'll get the drift of that. Just, just go to James 1 and 17, which says... Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Um, so if I said to you, I'm coming to your house for coffee tomorrow, you can either think brilliant or oh no, <laughs> depending on how much you like me. But then, if I rang you up and I said I've changed my mind, you would know exactly what I meant. I have changed my mind. I'm not coming. But God never changes his mind. Whenever we read about God changing his mind in the Bible, or whenever we read about God repenting, to some extent, uh, Matt might catch on to this, but there are, uh, uh, when it says repent and change in mind, it's the same word in the Hebrews. I, I, I don't know about that. That's, that's, that's Matt's pigeon. But God does not change. If God could change his mind, we'd be in trouble. One, because if he changed his mind, then he could change his mind about our salvation. We're going to heaven, and suddenly he changes his mind. We're not going to heaven. But if he changed his mind he would not be gone. Because if he changed his mind, there would be a higher being than God. And that is not so. Let me take you to um, a couple more of the verses. It um, was on that sheet of questionnaire. And this is coming from Jonah, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And it says, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. This is Jonah talking about going to Nineveh. Matt preached on it two weeks ago. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That, that is what I tried to foretell by fleeing to Tarshish. I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So here is Jonah. He knows if he's going to Nineveh, they are going to repent. And Nineveh are these guys who are a really nasty outfit. If they conquered someone, they would chop everybody's heads off and make a pile of the heads. They would skin people and nail their skins to the door. They were really nasty people. This is why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. But he knows if he goes to Nineveh, they're going to repent. He goes to Nineveh and they repent. Now, did God say, oh, 
I didn't know they were going to repent. Well, that's good. Now I can give them a good, good bill of health. But I didn't know they were going to repent. Well, of course he don't. He knows all along that they are going to repent. He knows that he is sending Jonah there to enact that out and so that they are going to repent. But God knows all, all the time that they are going to repent. God is not taken by surprise. Because if God was taken by surprise and he said, oh, they've repented, great, then Jonah would have known more than God. Because God, Jonah would have known that they're going to repent and God wouldn't have known that. So that's not so. God knows all along. So he's not, he doesn't change. He knows. He's not taken by surprise. If you go to, and you don't need to do this, but in Genesis chapter 18, uh, 20 and 21, then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now, this sort of thing is called uh, anthropomorphic, right? Now, I'll just explain that. It's the way that we look and think that the way these verses are, um, but they're not, they're not uh, in reality in that way. I'll give you two examples. If we said, the Lord is a strong tower, the righteous run into it, we know that God don't look like a castle. All right? That's anthropomorphic. If we said we are going to shelter under his wings, we know God hasn't got wings because we know the form that God takes because of Jesus on earth. That's anthropomorphic. That's just, this is the way that you can think, right? So God is not a castle. He hasn't got wings like that. So in this same way, when we say that God is going to come down to look at Sodom and Gomorrah, he knows all about what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. He's not suddenly taken by surprise. You don't suddenly come down and go, oh, no, this is happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, I've got to do something about this. He knows what is happening. So he's not taken by surprise. But, but we look at it, we can look at it in that way, right? Now, there are um, a sect called open, open theism. And, and this, these people believe that God don't know what is going to happen tomorrow, don't know what's going to happen to the, to the next minute. They believe that God is taking you by surprise with everything. So there's actually people out there that actually believe this. But of course, we believe that God has everything in hand since the um, beginning of time, since time everlasting. And God can put his deity to the test. And here's a verse where God puts his deity to the test. Isaiah 46, 8 to 11. Remember this. Keep it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please, from the east, I summon the bird of prey, and from far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. So God has everything in hand. He's never taken by surprise. 
And going to the verse um, which is on the questionnaire, which is 1 Samuel 15, 29. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie. So God doesn't lie about anything or change his mind. He doesn't change his mind about anything. Just like me in a cup of coffee at the start of the talk. For he is not human. We are human. We can change. Being that he's not a human, that he should change his mind. So we have to thank God that God cannot change his mind. It is in his makeup that he cannot change his mind. And we need to be um, assured and glad of that. Um, but unfortunately, we're humans and we do that. So I hope that's given some sort of a, a, a view as to um, the background to who God is in this um, sphere of not changing his mind or not repenting. The, these, these are um, sort of anthropomorphic um, um, ways of, of talking about it, just like the running into the castle, the, the, that's anthropomorphic. So um, as, uh, who was that guy that did the film? I'm trying to think of this. Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump said, that's all I've got to say on this subject, and that's all I've got to say about this subject. Just to, just, I just want to pose a question, slightly rhetorical, because of, the, <laughs> because of the potential hours and hours we could get discussing it, but I totally agree. Other than, is it that God can't change his mind or won't? Because that's the, that's the only thing I would say. I, I would personally say that he it, it's in his nature to do anything, but he chooses not to. But it doesn't really change the, the, the nature of the I'm going to throw something in there. I'm undecided. Am I allowed to say that? I, um, I don't know if I agree with that. I, I think I, 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 I do, and I don't. So I think when James says that God, God isn't, doesn't change like the shifting shadows, I think that he means God's heart is consistent and faithful. Who he is at his core doesn't change. Like his person doesn't change. He's a God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving sin and to thousands, but he does not leave the guilty unpunished and he punishes the sins of the parents. Like, this is who he says he is, right? Like, and who he is does not change. But his ability to interact with his creation and the way in which he may change is, I think, so I was just, there are a number of examples. Um, people cite like this, and, and I hear what you say about the, how did you say the word? Yeah, anthropomorphic word. Yeah, like I hear that and I see that and I'm going to dwell on that. But I, I see passages where God rocks up and, and has a conversation with Abraham about what he's going to do with Sodom and Gomorrah or Moses um, where God says to Moses, I'm going to wipe these people out because these Israelites, because they're unfaithful. Uh, and Moses says, no, 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 God, don't do that because you are a faithful God and these are your people. And God says, oh, okay, actually, you're right. Like, and he doesn't. And, and these passages, they may be whatever that word is. <laughs> I can't say it. 
But I also see a God who interacts with his creation. And there's a, there's a verse in Jeremiah 25, uh, 26, 19, where it says, um, And did not the Lord relent so that he did not bring disaster, the disaster he pronounced against them? So this is verse where it says, God pronounced this. I've spoken this. This is my word. It does not return to me without fulfilling what it will do. And yet the Lord relents. Um, in another translation, it says, uh, Jeremiah 26, verse 19. So this other translation says, Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all of Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune which he had pronounced against them. Like So scripture seems to, on one hand, say God doesn't change. But on the other hand, say that he does. And I think that it is possible for God to say, I have made my mind up about how I will bring all things under Jesus and how I will bring about all things and how I will deal with sin and bring about goodness. But within the journey of that, to interact with that and to change his mind about how he will get there but have at his core say, this is who I am. Like, Does that make sense? I think as well, without getting into the underlying argument of all of that, I think probably you and I sit on different, slightly different sides of the fence around um, several, several things. <laughs> but, but one of those in terms of God's sovereignty and free will, and we could get back to the whole Calvinist thing and all of that kind of thing. But I think that I would wholeheartedly say that God is sovereign, but I absolutely believe that within his sovereignty, he has given us free will, which means that we can end up, not that God doesn't know what we'll do. I think he knows all things and all possibilities. But within that, we may do things that God then says, right, well, I wanted to do this, but now you've gone and done that. So I'm going to do it like this instead. Like, but he's still going to achieve the things that he says he will do. Uh, yeah, I, it's interesting, isn't it? But I'm really going to dwell on what you said. Uh, did you want to? Uh, and you had a question. Did you want to ask? Uh, oh, go on. You think he changed his mind? Yeah, yeah, cool. The Exodus. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah, all I would say is, you know, when somebody says there's no wrong answer, but there's always a wrong answer. <laughs> In a human respect, we say that because we're just trying to be polite and get people to answer the question when they're sat there saying nothing but it yeah I wonder whether yeah that's almost like a metaphor for this in the sense that with God there are a number of choices but there just is no wrong answer but I'm not sure I'm I'm also yeah I think so and to some extent um, there's always a slight difference in um, theology and uh, between people in churches, and it's no different between me and Matt. <laughs> and we enjoy, we enjoy the chit-chat going through, and I guess at the end of the day, um, we still keep our own views. But the, the, the view on this, there's not much difference in it, there's not much argument in it. Um, and and the, the difference between me and Matt on some theological things, there's only hair's breadth between it. So there's no, we're not, we're, we're coming from the same place in a way. Um, but it's great fun and I enjoy it. To be fair, either way, if God's going to bring about the end of all things and renew all things and 
is ultimately going to happen, isn't it? So it's, it's like, I don't know. But yeah, I, I love the debate and I love trying to figure it out. And yeah, what are you going to say, Andrew? Uh, it just came to my mind if uh, maybe God doesn't change, does change his mind or he already knows what he will do. Mm. Like Abraham came to my mind. Mm. Yeah. 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 I, I should Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. 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 I should have given you the mic for the podcast, for the recording, sorry, but just for the sake of people listening on the podcast, Andrea was just raising the uh, story of Abraham and Isaac and whether God changed his mind or already knew what he was going to do. And, yeah, and I guess that's the thing. We live in that... We don't know, do we? We kind of um, so. I say, yeah. Do any, any other, anyone else want to chip in? David, come on, let's pass the mic around. For me, God is outside of time, so He can at any point, as He looks down on time, He can talk, look at Abraham, look at Jesus, look at us, look at Abraham again, and so He He knows all the choices we're going to make. And he talks into us and he knows how we're going to respond. So he is other than us. So when we talk about him, we have to do it in human terms. So we talk about it as in, and we use the words he changes his mind. Because from our perspective, you told me A and B's happened and he's happy. But he's outside of time and we just can't really comprehend that. And uh, so, you know, he visits... Abraham a million times doing exactly the same thing because that's what you can do outside of time you just pop into time and out in and out in and out and poor old Abraham sees it only as once but God's doing it you know what, what's he do with his time he hasn't got time <laughs> cool. we just can't understand that yeah yeah his ways are not our ways right his thoughts are not our thoughts he's high yeah great anyone else want to throw anything in Cool. All right. I love a good little debate. Um, all right, next question then is uh, Chris, James 2, verse 24. How does this fit with Romans 3, 28 and other scriptures where we get the idea that faith is, it is by faith alone that we are saved? Cool. So I'll just read the two, two verses. So let's start with James 2, 24, which says, You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. And then on the other hand, also it would seem, Romans 3.28 says, For we hold that no one, that one sorry, is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So, obviously, if you just read those two verses on their own, given that they're written by two different people, it, it would be safe to assume that they, they're coming from two different places. 
on, on, whereas on one hand, Paul is saying you can only be saved and justified by faith alone. It looks like James is saying that's not the case, that there needs to be some works in there as well. Um, so let, let's just r- remind ourselves that faith means to be persuaded. Okay, so yeah, there you go. Another commission for Matt. Um, and so the difference that the person asking the question is suggesting is whereas on one hand Paul is saying that you, it is just by being persuaded of the work of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection that secures us our salvation, James is saying that is not enough, which seems like not just a little debate between Den and Matt, that, that is a fundamental difference. That's, the, that's two different Gospels, basically. But what, what, I, what I will just say, and then I'll just go on to explain, is that I don't believe that is the case. They are preaching and speaking of the same Gospel, and with a bit of context, I think that's obvious. Um, so one, one thing I will... Well, and the reason I say that is because both James and Paul not just in, in, the, in, these, in these passages, but Paul throughout the different letters he writes, is trying to combat with what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my theological heroes, describes as cheap grace, which you may have heard of, um, which you can read about in The Cost of Discipleship, which is a fantastic book, and I recommend it. Um, i.e. the idea that, or oh, as long as you just have faith... As long as you're, you know, say that you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, you can continue to live in a way that's not pleasing to him. You can continue to, as Matt was saying, build a temple to the Lord and then build a palace next door for all your rubbish that you don't want God to see. That's, that's the definition of cheap grace. And actually what James is trying to do, if you read around the whole chapter and in fact the whole book and this is actually going back to what Matt preached about a, f- a few weeks back is that faith if you are persuaded by something you do something about it don't you so you know I was persuaded didn't take much persuasion I should say that I wanted to marry Nick so I did lots of things about it um you know, she didn't want me to, ha- to have a skinhead. I, to let you into a little secret, would prefer to just shave my hair off and be done with it. That's one less thing to have to worry about in the morning. But Nick prefers me to have hair, which is probably fair enough. So because I'm persuaded by her love, by her, who she is, I do something about it, okay? So just hold that thought. In fact, get rid of it. It's, it's uh, between me and her. Now... First thing to say about James is he talks about faith in a couple of other contexts. He talks about faith being useless and dead. Okay? He also talks about the faith of demons because he talks about in verse 19 how even even the demons know have they they know that who Jesus is. They 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 are persuaded by that. So I would argue that within that word faith there's actually different types of faith there's a different sort of quality of faith there's a faith that just accepts reality 
there's a not you know a knowing and that's cheap grace and then there's the faith that's actually persuaded to go on and do something so i think that's the first point is that what james isn't saying that you need you need works to be saved it's just that you know as he goes on to say throughout his 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 writing that if faith is real and you are to be persuaded something needs to come of that there needs to be some fruit um now just i'm just going to basically read a few other verses that sort of back that up at various points so the same is true of paul and let's go back to romans 3 where the the sort of difference is first highlighted chat sorry i keep getting mixed up between chats and verse verse 8 says why he says why not say as some slanderously claim that we say let us do evil that good may result their condemnation is just so paul is just as unequivocal if if you think that doing evil is the vehicle by which god shows his himself then you're you're foolish and then he later goes on to say do we then nullify the law by this faith not at all rather we uphold the law in other words the existence of faith is not an excuse to just put aside all that god had commanded his people to do and obviously we can get into conversation about what law remains what doesn't blah blah blah. but the point is that faith must produce something it must produce some works so i've I've just written here because it expresses it better than if i just waffled on that paul and james were both about justification through faith because that is the gospel but not at the expense of our calling to live lives that are holy and pleasing to God. You know, and that's what, what Paul makes very explicit in Romans 12, 1, when he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, that being key, isn't it? In view of God's mercy, so that's the thing that starts it off, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Those are the works that come from God's mercy which we are persuaded by and have faith in. He then also says in Galatians 5.13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, i.e. through the gospel, through the work of Jesus Christ. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. And that, that ultimately is the works that James is also referring to, the work of love that comes from, from faith. To be persuaded. And then Galatians 5, 6, just wrap it up in that, in that same vein. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision have any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Yeah, that's, the, that's another way of putting it, isn't it? So James isn't saying you must have faith, but you must also do, 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 do. It's... Your faith is only real, it's only, it, it's only valid, it's only manifest if, it, if love comes from it and love delivers works, it delivers things that are tangible. Just just final thing to say, because James refers to Abraham. Um, so in verse 21... He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
And again, if you read that in isolation, it, it would be fair to assume that what he's saying is Abraham did something. He, he, he did something of his own volition and then earned God's favor. But that's not the context because he then goes on to talk about how Abraham was justified through faith. You know, Sarai couldn't, couldn't have a baby and then God turns up and says, you're going to be the father of nations and, you know, it's going to bless, it's going to bless the world. Abraham's response isn't, okay, let's go and do it. I've got all these works to do in order to get the favour from God. It's, I believe that. And that, as James r- reminds us, is when he is credited with righteousness. So that just goes to prove the point that James wasn't saying that you must do works and have faith. It's faith must produce works in order for it to be faith in itself. Boom. Good, mate. Love that. Cool. All right. This next question. I don't know which one of you put this question in, but this question I <laughs> scratched my head over. And I, um, I'm going to say up front, I, this is a wrestle. And I don't, I don't honestly know quite what I think. So the question is this. Um, James 5, 14 to 16. Why don't we see more healing? Um, so James 5, 14, 16 reads like this. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. So it, it makes it sound like if you're sick, you just give Steve, Val, Glennis, uh, Emily Redshaw, or uh, Mags. Yeah, great. Or Mags are cool. Not me. You give one of them a call. They will come and pray for you, anoint you with oil, and you will be made well. <laughs> like, that's how it reads, right? Like, um, and I wish I could say that every single time we've prayed for someone, we've seen them healed. But that's n- not been our experience. And so does that mean we don't have faith? Like, because it says the prayer offered in faith will make the person well. Um, yeah, <laughs> let's all go home. <laughs> no, I, 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 honestly, I wrestled this. So I'm going to throw some thoughts out for you. Is that all right? And um, these really are, these are just my thoughts. I'm just extroverting with you through this question uh, to see where we land. Um, I, I've got some friends who believe that, or at least they say they believe that the Bible teaches that God heals all the time, every time. But I don't see that. And I wrestle with that. And there are big moves in the church uh, that teach that, that God heals all the time, every time. There was a, a church, a very well-known church, that was teaching that. And then they had a few um, situations where people got ill and people died. And 
And I think they still kind of have that teaching, but it's not as public. <laughs> um, I don't know, I haven't looked at it lately. But, and you think, well, so is, is, was there a lack of faith in the person that wasn't healed? Is there a lack of faith in the person that prayed? Is there, like, what was the situation? So, here are my random ramblings about that. Is that okay? We'll work, we'll work through this. I'm going to start in one place and probably land in 50 others, and we'll see what we come up with. So, so first up, I asked myself the question, is this what this passage is actually really about? Is this what James is trying to teach us? Um, and so I took a look at the Greek and to see what's this passage saying? Have we translated it well? Does it mean something different? Um, so first up, the, the Greek word that we translate as sick, so this will make the sick person well. That Greek word, it, it also can mean just weak. So feeble or weak or um, kind of tired, it can mean that. So, so the, the weak person um, not necessarily, doesn't necessarily mean sick, it can, it can mean that. Um, there are two words that are used for prayer. Uh, they are kind of rooted in the same word, but the first one which says, let them call the elders to pray is, is one word which means to draw near and wish. Um, and then the second word says in verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith. So that word prayer is a different word, and it means to vow, to, um, to declare or to vow something. Um, so it got me thinking, oh, are these different types of prayer? What does this mean? Like, you know, kind of. Um, so the idea being that the vow offered or the declaration offered in faith will make the sick person well. Um, Secondly, the word that we translate make well in the Greek is the word sozo. Um, and it, it literally means to save. So most other places in the New Testament that the word sozo is used, it, it refers to deliverance from spiritual death. Which is interesting because if you read on, it says... The prayer offered in faith will make the sick or the weak person well. So um, we'll sozo the, the weak person. The Lord will raise them up. And then it talks about their sin will be forgiven. So it is possible, um, if you look at, at the end of this, this chapter, so at the end of the whole letter, James 5.20, it finishes by saying, remember this, which is just a few sentences later. Remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save, that's that same word, sozo, will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. So it is possible that maybe what James is talking about is not physical sickness, but is spiritual sickness, is is spiritual death and actually if someone is weak and and maybe someone is in sin and all sin leads to death right this is what the bible teaches someone's in sin and you call the elders of the church those who have faith in jesus to come and pray over them to declare over them in faith um, and to lead them in that uh, prayer so to speak that they will be saved and their sin dealt with Maybe. That's one possible interpretation. Um, I'm not sure I'd buy that, by the way. I'm just throwing that out there as, a, as an option. I think probably it looks like James is talking about someone literally being 
sick and on their sick bed and then being raised up from their sick bed, not necessarily raised up spiritually. But it is possible that you could read it that way, which would make it a lot easier for those of us that are called in to pray, right? Like, oh, well, we don't have to expect a miracle here. We just have to make sure that you're going to heaven. Um, so it's interesting as well because all this talk about healing um, or being made well comes in the context of just a few verses before James talking about standing firm in suffering and waiting for the return of the Lord so that's odd isn't it like on one hand he's saying there's going to be suffering and stand firm um, endure the trial and, and in fact isn't it in James 1 he says you know kind of consider it pure joy um, when you face all kinds of trials and temptations um, but then he says well actually if you pray get the elders to pray you will be healed but I, I don't know I, I just I'm just being honest with you guys I, I'm looking at all this stuff and I'm going oh what do I make of all of this um then so another thought for you he says if they have sinned they will be forgiven and then he has this whole thing about confessing your sins to one another so obviously there's something about sin here right so maybe maybe this is talking about specific illness that is caused by sin, not just generic illness, but sickness that has come by sin. So maybe this is what this is referring to, not just if someone's just ill, period, but if they're ill because of some sort of sin that has made them ill. Now, I, I just want to throw in there something and say, I don't believe that all illness is caused by the sin of a person, okay? Um, I think John, uh, not John, uh, J, um, Jesus says that in John chapter 9. So when we get the guy who was blind and the disciples or the people gather around him and they say to him, what was his sin, or the sin of his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus says, this man hasn't sinned. There was, there was no sin. This guy was born blind so that you could see the glory of God, right? So, so this person has a sickness or illness or whatever, um, and it's got nothing to do with sin, and that's according to the word of Jesus. So I just want to put it out there. I do not believe that all sickness is caused by sin, but some sickness, if we read through the Bible, does appear that it is caused by sin. And, and, and I've heard of people praying, people coming forward for prayer with like a, a bad back or something like that. And I've heard people teaching in, in ministry training stuff that, and I don't know if I buy into this or not, I'm just sharing this with you, but I've heard people teach that, oh, you know, often I've seen that if someone's got a bad back, I um, often realize that actually it's because maybe they, um, they're carrying unforgiveness and actually, we, when I'm praying with them, I bring that up and then discover that actually there's some unforgiveness that they haven't forgiven someone. And as soon as they confess that and forgive them, suddenly they get healed. And, and, so, and I believe that probably that happens. So I'm not saying it's not true, but I'm also saying I don't think it's maybe a rule of, a rule of thumb, you know, kind of. A, but there seems to be some physical illnesses that maybe are connected to sin, but I don't know. So is this just James talking about illnesses that have come from sin? Um, I'm going to say that I don't necessarily buy that either because it seems to be that he's saying, hey, if someone's sick, call the elders, pray for them. They'll be made well when a prayer of faith is prayed. Oh, and by the way, if that person has sinned, their sin is forgiven. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the sick person has sinned, but if that sick person happens to have been sinned, their healing is a sign that that is forgiven as well. So I'm not, I don't think that it's just about that. Does that make sense? You're with me so far, okay? Are you just as confused as I am? Are we walking through this together? <laughs> um, so, all of that to say, I'm not entirely sure, because James seems to be saying, if you pray, that will happen. So why don't we then see more healing? 
Um, and I was thinking a bit about this. I was thinking um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul himself says that he's got a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that is, but we know that he struggled with something. And because he says thorn in the flesh, that, that word there, we're thinking that he means physically. Like there's something, it could have been that he was using it metaphorically to mean his sinful nature, but it could be that he's talking about his physical flesh. There's something physically that he struggled with. And, and it says that he prayed three times for God to take it, and God didn't. And the response from God is that his power is made perfect in Paul's weakness. So it seems that if this was a physical sickness or something that he was struggling with, even for Paul, there wasn't healing. So God doesn't seem to heal all the time, every time. Um, I think I can think of examples just against the whole Jesus heals all the time, every time. I don't even think Jesus himself did heal all the time, every time. I think of when Jesus rocked up to heal the, the guy that had been sat there for 38 years under Solomon's colonnades at the pool of Bethesda. And we know that that pool was filled with people. But in that account, we read that Jesus just healed one. Not all of them, just, just one. There's another guy that Jesus comes up to heal, and he doesn't just automatically heal him. He says to him, do you want to be well? The option seems to be implied there that if the guy didn't really want to be, Jesus wouldn't heal him. Like, so I don't think that Jesus healed all the time, every time. Um, this passage seems to raise some questions about faith, right? What does it mean to pray a prayer of faith? Um, so some have argued that, um, and I, I love this, Chris brought this up a minute ago, there seems to be different types of faith, right? Because if faith saves us, but even the demons have faith, even the demons are uh, persuaded about who Jesus is, but they're not somehow saved by what he's done. So that seems to be different to the faith that maybe we have. Does that make sense? There seems to be different kinds of faith, right? So what is the kind of faith that's being talked about here is, is, a, is a good question to ask. Um, and there are some people that suggest that the faith that James is talking about here, the faith that is needed, the prayer of faith, is, is not just the faith that we have. So not just that, oh, I am persuaded that Jesus is who he says he is, and that has saved me. Um, but actually, the, the faith that's being talked about here is the gift of faith that God talks about. Um, so um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we, we get a talk about the gifts of the Spirit. And some of them that are mentioned there is the gift of faith, which seems to be on top of just faith in Jesus, this sort of supernatural, overwhelming sense of faith for the impossible to happen, right? The gift of faith, along with the gift of healing. It doesn't just seem that healing happens. There seems to be a spiritual gift of healing that brings about healing. So these two things that James is talking about, healing and faith, maybe it's just not a normal prayer of faith, like, yes, I believe in Jesus, but a supernatural moving of the spirit that brings about the gift of faith for something extraordinary to happen. I love this, uh, George Muller, um, Christian, saw incredible things happen here in Bristol, right? Prayed for miracles, um, had loads and loads of money just come in. When he, when he needed money, he prayed for it and boom, it arrived. And, um, and it, I, I read about him, um, it, he said that he had faith, okay, the gift of faith, for funds, for finance, for the orphanages, until the day he died. But George Muller himself, 
is, is quoted as saying that he only had faith, the gift of faith, for healings until 1836. And after that, he no longer had faith for healings. Now, did he give up on Jesus? No. But he seems to be implying that the gift of faith was no longer something that he had for that specific thing, which is interesting, right? Um, and that's his story. Um, James chapter 1, um, well, all throughout James, we don't need to look at all of it, but all throughout James, James talks about faith. Chris has already mentioned this, so I'm not going to go over that. Uh, but um, I wonder if um, faith here isn't, isn't just about what we believe, but actually when it talks about this prayer of faith, um, is it more to do with something born out of relationship? So it talks about, doesn't it, that the prayer, it goes on to say the prayer of a righteous person or a righteous prayer. Uh, um, I can't remember the wording now, but brings about that healing, okay? It is answered, is heard. Um, and righteousness, we know in a biblical context, is about right relationship with God, right standing with God. And, and so is there something about this kind of faith that is coming from a place of relationship with God. So it's not just a head knowledge, not just a, I know in my head, and I'm absolutely convinced in my mind that Jesus can heal. Because I think all of us would say amen to that, right? We have a faith, a knowledge, a persuasion in our minds that Jesus can heal, and yet we don't always see it happen. I wonder if this kind of faith is something different. It's born out of a place where it's not about, well, I just, I know you can do it, God, but it's born out of such relationship with God that in the moment we catch God's heart to heal in this specific circumstance. And then the gift of faith is an operation to bring about that healing. So the prayer of a righteous person, the prayer of a person who's in relationship, is, I don't think it's saying that if you're righteous, every prayer you ask for will be answered. I think it's saying that if you're in right relationship with God, you know, you have that, that gift of faith in that moment to know that God wants to work a miracle here. And so you, you don't just pray as in the, wish to draw near and wish which was the first word for prayer but you pray as in the second word for prayer in verse 15 you vow you declare something that is true because it's come from that intimate walk with God and so in this moment I have this sense this gift of faith to know that God wants to do it so I'm not just going to wish or ask I'm going to vow I'm going to declare God is going to heal in this moment and I'm praying the prayer of faith does that make sense I wonder if there's something different going on there um so all of that to land by saying, I don't know, um, a com I think a combo of things. I think s sometimes, sometimes maybe, oh, I don't even want to say this, but I think maybe sometimes it is true, I don't know. Sometimes maybe we don't see it because maybe we haven't received the gift of faith for that moment. Like not just a belief in Jesus. I don't think any of us doubts our belief in Jesus, but maybe there isn't that gift of faith in that moment for that to happen. Maybe it is sometimes it's something to do with our level of faith, but not, not in the sense that it's a level that you can work up to, but as in a, a supernatural level that you've been gifted by the Spirit to be at. Does that make sense? I think sometimes maybe it is about our righteousness. How is our relationship with God? Because I think maybe we miss sometimes when God wants to do something miraculous, 
because we haven't been walking closely with him. And so we don't receive that gift of faith to, to, to not just pray wish, but to pray vow in that moment, you know? But actually, if we were, maybe we, we would hear that. I think sometimes maybe it is about our sin. Maybe it is because our sin is in the way and we need to deal with that. And, we, and actually, that's why I think James says, guys, Confess your sins to one another. Make this a regular practice of your discipleship. Do it weekly. Find someone that you can confess with so that your sin is regularly dealt with and you are walking well with the Lord so that when he whispers in your ear, I want to do this, you know, and there's nothing hindering that moment. Um, I think sometimes maybe there's a bigger uh, salvation narrative going on. So like with, with, with Jesus and the blind man, it was nothing to do with his sin. It was nothing to do with anybody's sin. It was just the fact that Jesus was going to get revealed in that moment as someone, uh, as the person that God had sent him to be. And I, and I wonder, that guy, that, that guy at the pool of Bethesda had been ill, lame for 38 years. He had prayed. People had prayed. He had tried all kinds of things. But God was doing something bigger, and 38 years later, along comes Jesus, and boom. It isn't just about that guy. It's about what that guy's experience reveals to the people around him about who Jesus is, you know? Um, and, um, yeah, I, I think probably what I'd land by saying is I don't think our focus should necessarily be on... on um, our own desires for healing, but I think, I've, and I think it's not wrong to want healing. Like, let's let's not stop ever praying for it, right? As a church, let's be bold and let's be willing to not see it time and time and time again for the one time that we might see it, and let's pray, okay? But I think our focus shouldn't be on the wanting that. Our focus should be on wanting the will of Jesus and the presence of Jesus, and our focus should be on Him. Does that make sense? And I think probably when you look to James and all his talk about faith. What is faith? It is, it is this in who Jesus is, right? And, and I think all of it is, should be pointing to him. Is that, is that all right? Yeah, go for it, Chris. Just, just really quickly, because um, there's a lot, a lot there, but I think, firstly, I would say, and you may have already said this and I missed it, in the midst of th- thinking, but I don't think there's, it's a coincidence that James picks out Elijah in that little passage, and talks about him, you know, praying that it wouldn't rain and then praying that it would rain. And I feel like it lends itself to that explanation that there is a supernatural faith that Elijah clearly had that, that doesn't mean that other people don't have faith. But and, and also just to share my experience, really. So, oh, I was going to... But um, I'm not somebody who see, has seen a prolific amount of healing in terms of me being in the room but I have I have over the years seen it happen but there is one day that sort of and as you were talking about that particular thing sort of sparked my memory at at Soul Survivor I was reading um, 1 Samuel not in the grand scheme of anything I was just reading 1 Samuel and as I read um, a little verse 10 No, where is it? Uh, Oh, sorry, verse 17. And this is Eli and um, Hannah. Eli says, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Um, And obviously then Hannah has Samuel. It's a miracle. And uh, I just, in that moment, knew God was saying, you're going to pray that over 
people or a person and they're going to be healed. And funnily enough, and I didn't know this, but the morning session where all the young people were at was about healing. And um, I think loads of people got healed and it sort of, again, lends itself to that big narrative. Loads of young people were being shown on that day that God heals. So it wasn't just about me or the couple of young people that I prayed for, but I knew when people were invited to get prayer, the couple of young people that I prayed for who needed healing didn't need me to sort of wish it. They needed me to command that same prayer that Eli prayed for Hannah. And I just did that. I literally just said those words and they were both healed. And I would say profoundly healed as well. You know, there are healings where you're like, oh, I'm not sure if that was that was healing. And so I think I would just second that sense that I've prayed for lots of people and they haven't been healed. And I don't know whether it's necessary because I didn't believe it as much as then. It's just that I believe God was saying, this is happening. Um, and that was a gift of faith that, that I used in that moment and has happened in different ways. Um, and But then I think there's also been times when because I haven't been right with God, I've missed those opportunities. And so I just want, want more of that. I'm just going to throw a story in, then I'll come to you, Dennis. Is that all right? Um, I just, I'll throw a story in about healing as well. I've probably shared this one multiple times because it's like my, my big go-to healing story. Um, I, I've been, like I said, I said this morning, I've been a Christian since I was like 12. And I'm 38 now. And I have not seen as many healings as I would have liked to have seen. I've prayed for lots of people who haven't been healed. And <laughs> I remember my mentor when I was down at, in Watford at Soul Survivor, he um, got cancer and Soul Survivor, great church. You guys probably heard about it a lot. And, um, and, and they would pray for, for Bob every Sunday. Every Sunday he'd come up and they'd pray for him. And, and there were big named people that were at the church as well that would pray for him and, and, and he died. Like he, he didn't, he didn't get healed, and so I've seen that kind of thing happen as well. Um, but there's one one time um, where I was at home uh, in my room, and suddenly just felt the Holy Spirit uh, come on me, and I just started praying for my friend um, from uni. And the next thing I know, I'm I'm <laughs> on my knees praying in tongues, just crying like over him and and i i have no idea what i was praying i just didn't know it was just interceding in the spirit and then suddenly like that it stopped and i got up and was like that was weird and then my phone rang and it was him and i was like that's strange and so i went over to see him and while i was with him he's not he's not christian while i was with him he told me that he have been really ill all over the summer. Doctors have basically said that they weren't entirely sure what was the problem, but they basically thought this was something he'd be living with now for the rest of his life. And I found myself, my mouth opened, and I just found myself saying, can I pray for you? And instantly wishing I could just suck the words back in. Do you know what I mean? Um, and he was like, yeah, I'd love that. And so I had no idea what I was doing, you know. I kind of went over to him and was like, well, why don't you stand up, hold out your hands like you're going to receive something from God, you know. Kind of, I'm like, I think back on it now and I'm like, you're an idiot, Matt. What were you doing? Like, but I was like, you know, assume the position kind of thing, like, you know. And um, I just put my hand on his shoulder. And I remember just praying um, something really simple like, Jesus, we, uh, we, would you 
show him that you love him and heal him. It was something like that. I don't remember exactly what I prayed. It, you know, um, and I just waited and invited the Holy Spirit. And we stood there for a bit. And then af- after a while, he, he just said to me, he said, oh, thanks. That was really nice. Like, I really just, really just loved it and really appreciate it when you just put your arm around me. Like, I just felt really, you know. And I was like, mate, I did not put my arm around you. I've been stood here like this the whole time. And, uh, I, and I just found myself saying to him, I have no idea why I said it. It felt like the right thing to say. It came out before I even thought about it, which is probably because I'm an extrovert and most of my thoughts do. But I, I just to him and said, you know, I said, that was just the arm of the father putting his arm around you because he, he loves you. Just, you know. And uh, anyway, the next day I get a call from him just saying, I slept and I haven't been in pain since you prayed and I'm healed. Like, I'm healed. And a week later, he's still healed. And he's gone to the doctors and they're like, there's no reason why that should have stopped. We don't know. And, and that was it. Like, um, yeah, anyway. So, again, that, that awesome, like, but it was that sense in which definitely in that moment, it was a Holy Spirit thing, like, like yours. Like, the Holy Spirit moved and, and it was something that he was doing that I just stupidly and idiotically got to be a part of, you know, um, and that's the only way I can explain it, really. Dem, what did you want to... I haven't got any answers. Um, what I think Matt said is, is brilliant, um, going around the, the different aspects of it, and I think that's great. I suppose I'm going to pose more questions than answers. I've got friends here, I've got a healing ministry, and... Yeah, mentioned this before but they raised her daughter from the dead and um, this was this happened in hospital so the daughter died in hospital so she died they know she died and they raised her from the dead they got a healing ministry right they also um, do things around the world they, they go into India and things and they raised a young girl from the dead in India and every month they've got a healing ministry where they put out it's a healing ministry come and be healed and is that something, I mean, this is all questions, this is, is that something, that gift that God has given, or is that something that is a great faith in them and, and they can do it? I don't know. When I've been at New Wine and when I've been at Wimber and I've seen people healed and I've gone for healing for my ears, Nothing has ever happened. Does that mean that I haven't got faith? Does that mean I haven't got enough faith? Matt has been talking about this. I don't know. Jesus, I believe, did everything according to the will of God. So he did everything in accordance to what his father told him. So I guess, I don't want to stand on dodgy ground here, but I guess if, if... someone was going to be healed by Jesus the Father pointed him to it in a way by by saying you know that's the man you you you, you know he's good you need to heal him um, he, he did he did everything in the father's will and does healing come because that is the will of the father whoever is healed because the father wills that through us um, how people get that healing ministry, it, it could be a gift. Um, I, 
I often wonder about this because, you know, we want to be healed from things. And to some extent, what, what is sort of coming to me in a way is I need to get nearer and nearer to God to understand where he's coming from, to understand the will of the Father in this whole business. And the nearer we get to the Father, the nearer we understand his will and we understand more what he wants for us. Now, I know that that is all questions because I haven't got any answers. But I see people with, 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 with this healing ministry and I don't know. I mean, I know these guys and they're not a lot different from us. But it's almost like to me that within the healing thing is, is really getting to understand what the will of the Father was, just like Jesus walked in the will of the Father with everything. Oh, that's, that's all I've got to say about that, really. Bless you, mate. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Um, it's 20 to 9. So we've got one question left, the group question. Do, do you want to do, do it? Should we just maybe take three minutes to have a quick talk about it? And Are we up for that? Yeah? All right, okay. So the last question then is 1 Chronicles 17 verse 2 um, is where uh, David is uh, like got it in his heart to build the temple for the Lord. And uh, he says, oh, I've got all this stuff, but the Lord hasn't got a house. I should build him a house. And then Nathan, the prophet, says to him, yeah, go for it. Do whatever's in your heart. And then in the next verse, uh, God says, no, no, uh, Nathan, go back and tell David no. <laughs> um, and so the question is, was it okay that Nathan told David to build the temple? Because that's kind of what he did, which, as the prophet, he spoke that forward, and it kind of seems like that was wrong, right? So, yeah, just a little group discussion about that, and then we'll see what your thoughts are, and cool. Um, yeah, why don't you, you guys here, why don't you kind of form a group, and you guys there form a group, that would be great. Is that okay? Yeah? Awesome. I'm, I'm literally going to give you just three, three or four minutes, and, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll feed back. Cool. All right. Who wants to go first? This group. David's going to speak. Awesome. Go for it. Well, it seems to me that you know, David comes to Nathan and tells him what he wants to do. And Nathan doesn't actually ask God. He just says, wow, that sounds a brilliant idea. You know, God's with you. And then, it, you know, the way it goes in the next verse, but... Oh, Nathan, you should have asked me. It's almost the way it is, you know. God came to Nathan and said, no, go and tell my servant David, this is what I planned. So, you know, in essence, it seems to me that Nathan didn't ask God and he just made a good human response. Yeah. Yeah. Hang on, hang on. I was just going to say, that's off, that is literally just like Poppy will tell John T to go ahead with something. You know, John T will say, you know, Shall I, this is my children, for those who don't know, shall I, you know, 
pick this up and chuck it at the window and Poppy's like, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. And then it's only when we come into the room and say, no, tell John to that's a bad idea. And then, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I think that's, that's what's going on. All right, anything? You, you just ditto. Yeah, 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 cool. I think it's interesting, isn't it? There are two things that, when I was thinking about this question, um, I think two things stood out to me. One was um, that it's interesting that, um, so when David screws up and gets something wrong, Nathan goes to him and then David humbles himself, right, and he repents. And interesting, even though Nathan hasn't gone and slept with anyone or anything like that, he, he, he actually... Uh, as a prophet, his words have power, right? And, and he, he's done something that, he, you're right, he didn't check with the Lord. But then when God says to him, Nathan, actually, this isn't right. You need to, he humbles himself and he goes, imagine going back to the king and saying, I got it wrong. Like, I imagine probably back then that was probably a beheadable offense. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm going to take you out and stone you to death. How dare you give wrong and bad advice to the king? You, do, and I think, in lots of cultures back then, it would have been. So to humble himself and to go back, I think, wow, that, that was amazing. Um, the other thing that I was just dwelling on with it was, and I think I'm actually doing some prayer ministry training with our prayer ministry team on Monday night. So I don't, um, one of the things that I was just thinking about is that often when we're praying for people, um, and, and, and we want to be open to the spirit of God in this church, right? And we want to be open to the gifts like prophecy. And, um, and sometimes when we're teaching on prophecy, we'll use things like with, um, with Jeremiah where God says to him, what do you see? And, oh, I see this. Well done, Jeremiah. You've seen correctly. This is what it means. And, and some, sometimes when people are teaching on prophecy, they'll talk about kind of when you're praying for people, what do you see? And, and maybe God's doing something in what you see and then speaking that out. And I, I am going to use this as an example of how we can sometimes get that wrong. Um, because actually, what Nathan saw was that God was with David, right? God's with David. God's blessing David. Everything David does is great. And so when David says, I want to do this, Nathan's response is, yeah, God's with you. Because he saw that God was with him. But just because he saw that God was with him, he then made a wrong assumption about what he saw. You know, um, and you're right. The key thing is he didn't actually say to God, "What, what are you doing here? Uh, what is it you want me to say here? What is the right thing here?" And I, and I think sometimes we just need to be cautious about, like, I, I want us as a church to step into the prophetic, and I want us to be seeing what the Spirit of God is doing and speaking that to one another. But just to hold that stuff lightly, because sometimes just because we've seen it doesn't mean we've understood it. You know, and we do need to still check with. God, um, what is it you're actually saying here? What is it you're actually doing here? Um, and I think I just was like, man, yeah, that's a, a real kind of lesson even for me in my role to check, not just to assume, but actually, God, what is it you're up to and what do you want to say? And so, yeah, and that was something I took from that. I thought it was an interesting question. Nathan doesn't seem to get stoned to death. He doesn't seem to be uh, struck off as a prophet, um, but he... In that moment, he, when he's told he's wrong, he does humble himself and he goes back and he, he corrects that and he steps in line with what God is saying. And I think that's something that we will need to be seeking to do and encouraging one another to do. So, yeah, cool. I think maybe what you just said then, you've kind of just answered your previous question about healing. 
about seeing what God's doing and about it's about um, seeing what's going to bring God glory and about listening to him and doing what he wants us to do and, and it's all about is this thing going to bring God glory and it might be a great thing to do it might seem like a really good thing but ultimately it's about is that going to bring God glory yeah, yeah absolutely yeah it's that being in right relationship with him and was it these guys also talked about um, seeking the will of the Father and what he's doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Any last comments or diagram? Thank you. For somebody who has not seen healing, although longed for it, prayed for it, fasted for it, it didn't happen. If you want to be encouraged, uh, I Zoom to Burundi every Saturday morning. Simon Gillibo began 20 years ago a work called Great Lakes Outreach. And it is just absolutely wonderful. These people are poverty stricken. They have nothing, next to nothing. But they know Jesus, they love him, they just go for it. And constantly there are healing. One person was in unforgiveness and for seven years her body hadn't grown. And you see her having dealt with unforgiveness and physically in front of their eyes. The seven years of no growth is taking place. It absolutely blows your mind. I sit there often bawling my head off, saying, why aren't we seeing that? We long for it, but we don't. Then I see how they live. Then I see that 200% they're sold out to Jesus. Nothing they have is theirs, is shared. And on Saturday, a lady came on and she was testifying to say she'd spent every single penny she had. She had nothing left seeking help for a little nine-year-old. And um, he comes onto the platform on his hands and knees crawling. He, I don't know what happened to him, but he could no longer stand. He couldn't walk. And in desperation, she wants better for her boy, and she spends everything. So she comes into this gospel meeting, which is about three or four, five hundred people, right? I mean, hundreds get saved. It's just absolutely thrilling. But they pray for this little lad. And she's, the, the lady was telling us a story. had been there last week in Burundi, and she said, I actually saw it. He's crawling on his hands and knees like he's a baby. He's prayed for, and he walks off of the platform, mm. you know? Um, it's absolutely thrilling. The only thing is, it's incredible. As much as you're so encouraged, and you just love it for them, I mean, your heart just bursts. It's discouraging for us, because... I've prayed for people seeing them healed, but I have prayed and fasted and wept for a long, long time. Still lost my son. I don't understand it. I really don't understand it. Matt knows where I am. Um, but it's just so encouraging to see when your heart's set after God, and that's your number one priority, uh, what he does. And, and half the time, I don't think we expect it here. Well, that's thrilling. So it's nine o'clock. If you want the details, I'll give them to you. I love that she said she zooms off to Burundi because she used to say she flies off to Burundi. And I thought, she flies to Burundi every week. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Den, do you want to pray for us to wrap up? Lord, thank you for tonight, and we thank you for the people that are gathered here. Bless us as we go home now, and Lord, instill in us 
the things that we have learned about you tonight. And Lord, one thing that seems to be in our hearts really is the understanding of the will of the Father and this healing um, which you give. And I pray that within this church, you will open up our hearts to understand everything about how the Lord Jesus in the will of the Father healed. Because Lord, we want to see not for spectacular things, but for the real heart of people being healed from their ailments and from their um, anything that's wrong with them. Lord, we're asking that, that, that you will show us around this problem. Uh, I'm saying a problem, you know it's not a problem, but showing us around everything about what we need to do, how we need to go about it, where we need to get closer to you, whether we need to get on our knees before you as a church, just show us what to do um, to become closer to you in, 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 in this business of understanding um, the healing that um, comes through your word and comes through um, you and, and the will of the Father. Amen. Thanks, guys.